While a lot of VCs may ironically be discouraged by turmoil in emerging markets, Shunayata feels comfortable in messy places. In his own words, because he grew up in one. A Nairobi native, he's lived in the US as a young consultant, in the UK as an anthropology student, and in Dubai as a company operator. He even had a brief career as a recording artist. If you notice the switch up in the soundtrack today, that's his music in the opening of this episode. It was through his winding journey that he found where he wanted to place his intellectual energy, financing tech and underrepresented founders. Shu joined the investment team at SoftBank in Silicon Valley in 2015, before it started revealing itself to the world as the powerhouse it is today. Since then, he helped direct roughly $2.5 billion in growth capital to startups in Latin America. He's also behind initiatives like SoftBank's AI Academy and the Opportunity Fund. In this episode, Shu urges you to embrace the mess he's talking about, the myth of the pipeline problem, why momentum trumps market size, and how complexity becomes opportunity. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Well, cool, man. This is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this chat. You could tell our audience a little bit about your path to the Silicon Valley from RMB to VC, man. Uh, <laughs> from Seoul. Yeah. Uh, Seoul, I yeah. Mean, it's okay. RMB is great. It is the most nonlinear thing. Basically, it's a, not to be trite about it, it's a journey of self discovery. Because the thing, I have many thoughts on on what being an immigrant means, but one of the things being an immigrant means is you're just so focused on getting to the U.S. or getting to wherever it is that that's the only thing that matters, right? You're like, I just need to get there. And often what that means is you're just achieving. You're told, okay, to get there, you need to do ABC. And I've got it, okay. And so your whole life is focused on doing ABC. My, my whole life up to eighth grade was focused on doing a good job on the eighth grade standardized test in Kenya. My whole life during high school was focused on doing a good job on the standardized test in 12th grade in Kenya. Like that's, that's it. And uh, that enabled me to get the completely life-altering opportunity to go to Harvard. And so I showed up and I'm like, oh, now what? <laughs> it's not as clear what the next thing is. And I realized I had no idea who I was. The, the biggest culture shock as a freshman at Harvard was not being away from home. I was used to that. It was not all the cultural stuff around media and TV and music. We had that in Kenya. Kenya basically got stuff from the U.S. all the time. So that, that wasn't a shock. The biggest culture, and it wasn't the academic load that I was used to. The biggest shock was I had no idea who I was. And so many other people seemed to have a much more developed sense of their interests. I just didn't know what that was. I didn't really think about that. And so I uh, majored in economics, but then I had this crisis sophomore year. I'm like, should I be doing something else? And then almost switched, but stayed with economics. By senior year, I was like taking creative writing classes and philosophy classes. I basically missed all of the intellectual exploration that I suppose I should have been doing for most of my young adult life. And so I graduated and I'd always done music. I graduated and I applied for McKinsey because you need a visa. You can't just hang out again. Like you, you have to do certain things just to be viable in the U.S. And so I got a job at McKinsey and 
I had all of these confusions in my mind. I liked music. I liked writing. I'd taken a couple classes in like kind of anthropology and art and, and it, it was so stimulating. I was like, what do I do with this? And I found myself sitting in a cubicle in Manhattan doing PowerPoint. And I thought this is, this can't be the logical conclusion of all of these years. Like it doesn't end in a cubicle in Manhattan doing PowerPoint. There's something, there's something wrong with that. And I hated it. And it was, it was 2002 and the whole economy was a mess. The, the, the analyst class above us was fired. So there were like 10 analysts in the whole of McKinsey, New York, which is kind of a crazy idea. 10 people at the bottom of the work funnel <laughs> processing PowerPoint <laughs> in cubicles that hadn't been refurbished for a decade. And so I was just in crisis. After my first two years of McKinsey, you stick it out. You kind of do the job uh, so that you get the offer to come back later in the future. So at least I secured that return one day if you want offer from McKinsey. And I said, all right, we got to start from scratch here. And so I recorded an album, which had been brewing for a while. I, all my savings from McKinsey, I poured into an album, a basement studio in Brooklyn, and I recorded the whole album. And I applied for a graduate degree in anthropology at Oxford. And I got it, and someone else was paying for it because it was on a scholarship, which was great. And I went and did that, and I was pursuing the music at the same time. I performed in the UK. I traveled back to the US. I performed. I was doing my grad studies. And that was the most fruitful self-awakening of my life. I feel like that's what I should have been doing senior high school. But I was doing it like after I graduated college. I was like, okay, this, this is what gets me going. This doesn't get me going. And then I went back to the US, and I was, the music thing had some momentum. So I kept doing that. And for two years, I was basically a working musician in, in New York. Um, and traveling and touring and, and performing and released a second album. And, but that, that world also has a huge dark side, which is like, unless you're in the top 0.0001%, you're not making any money. And that's still true now, by the way, even though Spotify and them help, there's so much noise that to break through, it takes a lot. And so there are many artists who are just not paying their bills. And I decided to trigger this option to go back to McKinsey because I was broke. I was like, I, I'm not enjoying how I'm living now. So other considerations started to seep in. I'd, I'd explored the curiosity, but now I realized, oh, I have to balance that with actually having a lifestyle that I want and all of that. And so I went back to McKinsey for that simple reason. And after, after a couple more years at McKinsey, which were very, very good, and I was parallel doing that and music in New York, which was possible, I kind of managed to juggle the two. McKinsey sent me to Dubai on a project randomly. And that changed my life because I saw Dubai and I was like, oh my God, look at this place. I came from Nairobi, remember? People in the US are like, Dubai is so tacky and cheesy, it's Vegas. I came from Nairobi, which is your background. And I'm like, why doesn't Nairobi look like Dubai? Like, why, why not? How did Dubai do it in 30 years? And Nairobi still looks like that, like kind of like dirty and the sun is setting kind of, and you know, like <laughs> the buildings are old. Oh, why? <laughs> And Dubai doesn't have oil. They are running out of oil. And so I was so fascinated with this idea of creating metropolis from scratch that I just saw the good side. I said, I'm moving to Dubai. I got to figure this out. So I quit McKinsey, moved to Dubai, helped build a, a company in the Middle East. And again, I was scratching a curiosity. I was just pulling the thread where it took me. And then I had the biggest crisis, which was 2010, 5 p.m., hot summer day in Dubai, like 110 degrees. My glasses were all fogged up. I was standing outside. 
And I went, oh my God, I'm in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. <laughs> because every job offer I was getting was, hey, you want to do something in, in, in Libya? I'm, I'm exaggerating, it's a joke, but like Middle East. Like all, it was all about, hey, you want to do more in the Middle East? You seem to like this stuff. Or, hey, how about more media, old media, which I knew was dying. I was just doing it as an experiment. And I was stuck, basically, in this local maxima, you know, and I couldn't get out. It takes a lot of energy to get out of local maxima. And I stepped back for the first time, really, after this accumulated journey. It was basically like an eight-year journey from graduating college, this accumulated journey. And I said, all right, now I know all these things about myself, and I kind of know a few things about the world. What do I want? And it was crystal clear to me that I wanted to be in something finance-related because that traveled globally really well. It doesn't matter. Johannesburg, Hong Kong, a bond is a bond. And I, I wanted, I liked being global. And it was also crystal clear to me that tech was the future. Like there was no denying it. It was everywhere. It was like the thing uh, that was driving everything coming out of the crisis. And I said, I got to be in San Francisco doing finance. I just got to figure that out. And I spent about a year and a half knocking on every door, getting told no by everybody because I didn't have the, the, the investment banking background traditionally. I took the CFA exam to show, look, I can do this stuff and nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, JP Morgan, grateful to this day, said, all right, we'll take you. And first it was in New York and then to San Francisco. They said, but you got to go be an associate. And I was older. That was the oldest associate. I said, I'll do it. And I did it. And of course, it was fine. I mean, it's just work, which I was never scared of doing. Uh, I, I was happy to prove myself. And the thing that that gave me is it put me in San Francisco doing finance and tech. And that's what I had wanted. And from there, the whole world opened up. And it was kind of a sense of relief of, of finally, okay, this, this is motivating me every day. This is what I want to keep doing. I met uh, the SoftBank folks who were just building the, the Silicon Valley investment team for the first time, really, in a proper way. And because of my crazy random background, I said, yeah, we don't think you'll mind it here because we're kind of crazy and random. So why don't you come help us figure this out? And I said, done. And so I quit banking and I joined SoftBank. And six years later, here we are. What people don't realize is that like that time SoftBank, it was just like this crazy guy in Japan, right? Nobody knew who SoftBank was. They're like, Masa, Telco, I've seen the signs in Tokyo with like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> You're joining a Japanese Telco? And what I understood that people didn't, because I'd worked on the Alibaba IPO, was SoftBank is, yes, they owned a Telco. But Masa is this crazy guy who wants to invest in the future of the world. <laughs> And uh, when, when I spent time with him as part of the whole onboarding process, I mean, it was a small group of people. Masa would come and just talk to us all the time about what he wanted to do. That's what got me really inspired and, and keeps me inspired now. Because Masa is, I mean, nobody dreams bigger in public, unafraid of ridicule than he does. It's incredible as a skill. And he just doesn't care. He's like, this is my true north. If you don't believe it, fine. I'm going to do it. And that is incredibly inspiring. And so that's been essentially the journey of the last six years is SoftBank unveiling, it, revealing itself to the world. It's amazing. Do you think that your background, having grown up in, in Nairobi, it gives you a unique perspective on the world, right? I'm from the Bay Area. We're, we're both now kind of you know, situated in the Bay Area. And when you talk to someone in the Bay Area that hasn't really left that, <laughs> that little 
50 mile radius and you're talking about these new frontier markets, there's a limited perspective on that. And I mean, is that, that's something that just, I guess, was a natural fit because you'd worked in Dubai, you, you know, grew up in Nairobi. How, how does that give you kind of an advantage with how you see things and, and how do you think that's helped you along your journey? I'd say there's always a fascination with America. There's always a fascination within tech with Silicon Valley because those are the North Stars. And again, it's this immigrant idea of you, you want to be there. You're like, I, I, I want to uh, be where the action is in that place on the hill. And I got to Silicon Valley and that was the initial obsession is let me just dive into everything that's happening here. It's all about the US, 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 US. And then I learned there's this thing called China. And, and oh my God, <laughs> look what's happening in China. I was lucky to take a few trips there and it blew my mind because it was just so different. It felt so different. And it felt so much more immediate to people's lives. The U.S. is super, like the, the, the innovation that's happening now is to some extent super abstract, like snowflake, a huge success recently. Like ask an average person to describe what it is. Nobody knows. Ask a non-average person, like NVC, to describe what it is. Oh, it's a database company, but like it's so abstract, like very few people can actually talk about it. Huge successful IPO. In China, it is these companies that are just reshaping life, reshaping big pieces of GDP. And so where Snowflake is really intellectually interesting, I'm moved more by these big kind of population or company-facing companies because they, they move the needle in terms of what happens in a place. And so when I was introduced to China, when I spent some time in India, um, and then when I spent a, a bit of time in Latin America... I realized that's where my energy was. It was just more exciting. And it was also less uh, of a commodity conversation piece. People knew less about it. And if there's one thing I'm committed to is being different is better than being good. So rather than be the next awesome, deep infrastructure uh, SaaS expert in Silicon Valley uh, living in Menlo Park, like there are many of those, rather than trying to be the best one of those, I'd rather do something where people aren't doing a lot of it yet because I think there's more alpha there. It's definitionally, if you're right, you'll, you'll, you'll do better and, and the outcomes will be better for you. And it's, I find it more intellectually interesting to do these things that touch both big pieces of the economy and tech. And the, usually what keeps people away from making the kind of decision I have is what you're mentioning is they're kind of a scared, like emerging markets. Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't have that problem. I'm, I'm super comfortable in messy places because I grew up in one. <laughs> and so to me, that's just, that's just life. And the opportunity is commensurate with the difficulty. And so when we started exploring LATAM two years ago, you started exploring it way before that. But when we started exploring LATAM two years ago, it just felt familiar. And I, and, and I felt I kind of have a sense of how this story is going to play out. And I'm here for it. I think it's energizing and so that, that's why focusing on LATAM in the last two years has been quite, a, quite an easy decision to wake up for every day. Talk about the impetus for, for that LATAM focus. I mean, when was the realization, okay, this is a large region, huge opportunities, lots of friction. Talk, talk us through a little bit about what that moment was like when it's like, okay, let's, let's double down on this part of the world. Yeah, so late 2018, um, tech was booming. <laughs> it has been booming since like 20. 
10. So this was eight years into that whole thing. China had become clearly a juggernaut. Like no one was debating Alibaba anymore. That was done. And um, we'd also at SoftBank seen a bunch of stuff that was interesting in India. And the, the Vision Fund 1 had kind of gotten deep into its investing phase. And at that point, so I was at SoftBank pre-Vision Fund, and then I helped get the Vision Fund going basically as part of that core team. And then in the end of 2018, Vision Fund was like a big global machine, basically. And I generally don't love big global machines. I like smaller teams doing stuff. And Marcelo Claude, who was the CEO of Sprint, uh, after he his company had been bought by SoftBank, Brightstar, biggest uh, Latin-owned startup company ever created, uh, and sold that to SoftBank, and then ran Sprint. And he was basically like a super EIR at SoftBank after the Sprint sale, trying to figure out what to do. And he and I got to know each other, and we're just talking about random projects. And I like riffing with people on random projects and putting my hand up and saying, I'll help you figure out more random projects. And he said, I think there's something in LATAM. And so we we dug in and started exploring what was going on there, why it wasn't on the map in the way India and China were. And there wasn't a good explanation. We saw the macro stats, compelling GDP, GDP per capita, growth, demographics, the young population, digitally savvy, all of this stuff. And just couldn't figure out why it was Mercado Libre that everyone was talking about. Like, where, where are the rest? <laughs> and so we essentially, on a bit of a, a, a kind of top-down thesis bet, said, we think what's missing is capital. So let's just get this thing going. And Marcelo's typical style is, you start and you figure it out later, <laughs> which I love. So I said, let's just go. $5 billion fund, vamanos. And I said, okay, I'm here for it. And, <laughs> and so... And so I jumped in and we hired people and we started investing in companies and very quickly realized, I think we're right. I think it's just capital missing because like these entrepreneurs are blowing us away. They're so good. The opportunities are so big. Like everyone understands tech. Like they're so sophisticated in how they think about building companies. Like, I think maybe we're right, but we weren't convinced. We, we just were kind of feeling good about it. And that was 2019. And then 2020, COVID basically made everything we thought would happen in 2023 happen last year. Everything. I mean, just no surprise. This is not an insightful comment, but it pulled the future forward big time. And we saw all the companies working. They were just the future of LATAM. They were digital first. They were the new economy. And they just started to work at a really accelerated pace. And that got us even more excited. And so it was really as simple as capital was missing. The fundamentals were there. And then there was this catalyst called COVID that made it all just accelerate way quicker than we thought. And here we are, right? Two years in. Amazing. You tweeted, I follow you on Twitter, you tweeted something about kind of the complexity bringing advantage against international players, right? And about the benefit in being obsessed with solving a particular small problem instead of going after the big idea for the huge market. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So I'll talk about both those points. I, I really care about both a lot, actually. I think difficult markets are, are great for entrepreneurs if it's your home turf. Because just like I said about emerging markets, I'm glad uh, Silicon Valley is still kind of scared of Mexico and Brazil. 
Because that means they're not going to come in with crazy term sheets and inflate valuations and lower our returns, at least not immediately. I mean, it's starting to happen now because there are very few places in the world to put capital. But the more difficult a place is, the more the local has an advantage. And Brazil is frigging difficult. I mean, you know this better than anybody. Uh, they, they perfected complexity and, and bureaucracy and like arcane, all kinds of stuff. And that is great for the local entrepreneur because it's much easier for pick a company, uh, Shopify, to say, let's go to the UK. Than it is to, and it's much simpler to say, let's go to Mexico, by the way, than to say, let's go to Brazil. Let's go to Brazil is like a big headache, big commitment. And very few companies are willing to devote that kind of energy when they're still so early in their global growth. So for this period of time, you have people say, yeah, we'll get to Brazil. We know it's big and interesting, but damn, it's so hard to do business. And let's, let's just wait another year or two. All of that is an umbrella for local companies to flourish. So I think companies should just embrace the fact that it's a little difficult to do business in and own it as locals. The second point about small problems versus big problems Everyone is caught up in total addressable market, everybody. And it's in every single pitch deck I've ever seen, someone has talked about how big the market is. Every single one, even the shitty companies, even the, the companies that fail. Like nobody says we have a small market. And so in a sense, it's not a useful starting point because clearly it's not the thing that defines how successful your company is. So what is it that defines how successful your company is? And if you look at the pattern, and there are many examples. It's not here's a big market, but rather it's here's a very thoughtful solution to a problem that people have that gives me momentum as a company. Because that's what you want. You want momentum. Momentum begets momentum. Momentum helps you raise the next round. Momentum helps you hire people. Momentum creates that culture and tribal vibe that you need in a startup. And I find the more specific the problem, the more specific the answer, like Amazon books or Google, just the search bar, just organize the web or Airbnb. And let's just help to get people have their mattresses available for other folks. There's so many examples where it's just a very specific thing. Uber, high-end cars available, push of a button. And you, you, you build S-curves over time. So that's your first one. And maybe it's a tiny one. But as long as you're generally shooting in the right direction, and every piece of GDP is big, by the way, you're generally shooting in the right direction, it'll work out. And I'll give the counterexample. So there's some markets that are huge, healthcare, where it's been very hard to build a startup. Because if you start with, look at this huge market, you miss, it's so complicated. There are all these, it's multi-constituent, like who's getting the service is different from who's paying for it, where the risk sits is so confused. And so finding the right starting point that's narrow enough and specific enough, even if the market is big, is way more important than the total addressable market. And so I love pitches where the founder says, here's the specific thing I'm doing. Sure, maybe there's room to keep growing in this market, but it's kind of hard to predict. All I know is I'm doing this very specific thing, and the people I'm doing it for find it super valuable, and my cohorts look great, and my growth looks great, and my team is energized. like that. That we'd invest in all day long. And I mean, usually, tangentially, you can figure out how to get to the big. If you're serving that customer initially, they fall in love with it. There's plenty of tangential opportunities if it's whatever the sector is, right? Like education. Okay, you start with this and then whole other swath of opportunities that are going to be there. So I, I think that's uh, 
it also gets the network effect going, right? Which which is absolutely critical. Yeah, I mean, today we're recording this podcast. It's going to come out on a different day, but today is the International Day of of the you know Women's International. That's right. So I think it's very appropriate. And on your investing team, I think when I call it, there's there's eleven people on the the team. Ten are black or Latinx. Five are women. And so that obviously, when you have a diversity of a team, like you just easier to spot opportunities too because you just understand. Talk a little bit more about that in terms of the team composition and your perspective on kind of returns, underrepresented founders, and why they're able to see opportunities that others aren't. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a bit of a macro point on that question because I think it is the answer to the question. Purpose is something that's not talked about a lot. And it's this really, really powerful thing. So the fund, the opportunity fund is not an impact fund. The goal is to make money to be a top quartile fund. Because the only way you, you get more funding into this theme is if you make money and show people, hey, there's money to be made here and then more money will come. But it is a fund that's driven by purpose, very clear sense of purpose. And what that does is it attracts people automatically. <laughs> My wife works for a company called Honor. She's the CEO of Honor, which is an in-home care for elders in the US. Very purpose-driven company. Attracting people to join that and work in the company is made incrementally easier by a sense of purpose. And I think increasingly, you're going to see companies that advertise their purpose a little more because that helps people join them. It helps them close deals more. Um, it helps retain employees more. And the beauty of the Opportunity Fund is it had that impact. So assembling a team that cared about that was very straightforward because people just reached out. The companies we've invested in similarly are happy to take capital from the Opportunity Fund because it has a purpose. And so even high-flying companies, we're not just trying to go and find companies no one else has invested in yet. We also we want to mix some companies that are proven, some that are not, because the goal is to generate returns. And getting that capital accepted by founders has been much more straightforward because they feel an alignment of purpose. And, and same in LATAM. So if we think of the big themes for the next couple of decades, people talk about AI, People talk about crypto. People talk about climate. I think purpose is on that list because every generation is getting more and more purposeful. And I think companies that have purpose and companies that don't have purpose will bifurcate in their returns, in their ability to attract people, in their ability to penetrate markets. And I feel that way in Latam as well. So let's talk a little bit about, I hear this topic in Latin America where people kind of blame this like pipeline of opportunities and they say there aren't many good opportunities and it's hard to find these founders. Like, is that just, is that just BS? I mean, like, tell me what you've seen in the, the last couple of years and like, where are you excited? Like when you get up and you say, wow, this is like, we still have so much to do. That to me now is such a crazy statement that there's no pipeline of founders. It's such a crazy statement because like it's false. <laughs> it is so... <laughs> It is so, dem so demonstrably false. What it means is I haven't seen a lot of LATAM companies show up in TechCrunch. That's kind of really what it means. Yeah. In, in my things that I read, I just don't see LATAM that much. That's what it means. It's, it's a shortcoming of the observer, not the observed. If you go to LATAM and spend a day, that's it, in Brazil, and a day in Mexico, and a day in Colombia, and a day in Argentina, with the right guide, you'll be blown away 
at the diversity of things that are happening. We have had no problem investing two and a half billion dollars in two years. Like, no problem. We haven't stretched to do that. It's not like we're trying to do something unusual. No problem. 30 companies, 30 investments, two and a half billion dollars. And the industry before that was like half that size. So you may think because of the size of the industry, because they don't show up in TechCrunch, it's just Rappi and Newbank. But when you just go one level below, leave alone two or three, that's just demonstrably false. So my response is people haven't, haven't had the curiosity to dig deeper. And, and by the way, related to this, so we have a fund in the US, a very small fund called the Opportunity Fund. This is for Black and Latino and Native American founders, $100 million fund. Same thing was said. Oh, you, what are you guys doing? Like, that's a lot for this underrepresented founder. There's no pipeline. Again, demonstrably false. Like, we've had no problem also investing in 30 companies and like a big chunk of the fund already in less than a year. Like, we have to slow ourselves down. And it's every sector because people are innovating everywhere. And the myopia of thinking if it's not in Silicon Valley, it doesn't exist is real. Or if it's not in New York and Silicon Valley and Berlin and Beijing, it doesn't exist, is, is real. But if you just do a little bit of work, you'll see that that's false. And I just think most people are not willing to go out there. I, I remember hearing somewhere that that, that fund, um, the diversity fund, $100 million, was put together in 48 hours. Is that is that true? Or am I, is this, am I just hearing this? No, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, and, and again consistent with Marcelo's style of let's just get going. We'll figure it out later, <laughs> which is by the way, I'm sure you relate to this, right? True entrepreneur style. It's like, you can't, you can't spend all your time analyzing whether it makes sense or not. You have to take a leap of faith at some point. And he's comfortable taking a leap of faith earlier than most people. And he'll say, I kind of directionally think there's something here. Let's go. We'll figure it out later. And I love that style. And so, so that was the Latam fund. That was also the opportunity fund. And because there's kind of this practiced rhythm of doing things together, Opportunity Fund was a Monday evening. Hey, everyone's putting press releases about you. We support you uh, in your diversity and inclusion efforts and our hearts are with And so we can't do that. We need to just launch a fund because that's what we do. We need to invest capital. So I'm going to go on CNBC on Wednesday. Sure, you figure it out. This was Monday night. <laughs> and by Wednesday, we had a fund. And <laughs> now we have 30 companies. So once you get used to just like just get going, like momentum is a beautiful word. It's like this wonderful concept and it feeds on itself because then it becomes self-reinforcing and it, it, it makes what you want to happen happen because of you, like you're a contributor to the outcome that you want instead of waiting for it to happen, then you participate, but it takes a bit of courage and the right, the right people around the right risk appetite. Do you ever talk about the concept uh, Ikigai? At SoftBank, have you heard of that concept? I have. I just recently uh, saw that uh, illustrated, which is when all these different things come together, right? Uh, it's it's a Japanese concept that means reason for being, and it's it's a combination of what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you're good at. And the intersection of those, like what you love and what the world needs, that's your mission. What the world needs and what you can be paid for, that's your vocation. And then what you can be paid for and what you're good at is your profession. And lastly, what you're good at and what you love is essentially your passion. And so 
that's a lot of what you, you just described. And, uh, you know, that, that's your purpose, right? When, and when you can get people around that, like, it's kind of amazing what you can make happen, right? Yeah. And, and the interesting thing, I think, about the trend of entrepreneurship, of startups, because startups are now like a real thing. When people graduate college now, they're like, should I go into banking? Should I go into tech? Or should I do a startup? Like, suddenly, it's a viable option. Part of what I think, should I do a startup? What I think people are saying when they say that is, should I do an Ikigai thing? Like, should I yeah. do something that combines everything? Because it's never been easier to get a little bit of capital to try that. And so what you have is in the 50s and 60s, people would join these big enterprises and just, you know, get a job and provide for their family. And then it started to get a little more bifurcated. And we're getting to this point where it's going to be super fragmented and people will do something they're just insanely passionate about and attract other people in capital to do that thing on this shared infrastructure of AWS. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, and I remember, I mean, you know that I'm a little old school in Brazil and LATAM. You know, I'm, I remember being in Sao Paulo in 2011 and I'm like trying to recruit these people. And everyone is working at McKinsey, investment banks. And, and I'm like, no, you got to just jump on board here. And it's like, you want me to take a, a 50% pay cut and you want me to do this thing that doesn't have like financial backing. So it's cool to see. And I think the one thing that you guys have brought to the table is that people are like, oh, this is really happening now, right? Like this is historically we're, we're going into that corporate world. And now they're just like, yeah, it really is a viable opportunity. And actually I can make more money maybe and have a bigger impact. Of course, my motivation for doing it if money is the main driver, it's okay to want to make money. But obviously, I talk a lot about just like, you've got to have a, you know, going back to that purpose statement. So I, I'm a total capitalist, and unapologetically so, because I've seen what not having resources looks like. <laughs> so I believe in it at, a, at an individual level, at a, at a societal level. It, you can do more when you can create wealth and resources. And I think the interesting thing about what you said just now is the social risk of doing a startup, especially in emerging markets, has reduced dramatically when you have a branded capital provider. If you just have like families and mom and pop and like some government pension plan, it's still not like you, you have to realize in some of these markets, you need to explain your decision to a lot of people. Like, where are you going to work? Uh, Brian.inc. Are you leaving McKinsey to go to Brian.inc? Why? Like, how does that make sense? And it's just a lot of emotional drain. If you say SoftBank or uh, Kazek or Andreessen Horowitz or pick a capital provider uh, is banking this company and that's a recognized thing, it reduces the social risk. And that's very important for people to make some of these choices. So part of what we've done in LightM is we've brought branded capital in a pretty big way to the region. And that just unlocks itself, self-fulfilling in a sense. Yeah, it's funny. You, there's something really just to kind of hone in, even on language. So Latin America, Spanish, for example, there's a, a statement that encompasses so much and it's, que dirán? what will they say? That's a mantra where it's like, you're with your family in Christmas. They're like, so what are you doing now? And before it was like, oh, I used to work at Banco de República, whatever. And it was the bank that everyone knew. And now like, it becomes not such like a, a stigma to be associated with something that's up and coming. And I think that the, having that stamp of approval of like a, a deep capital provider uh, makes it more, more easy. But it, it's built into the language even, like Kedian. That's okay. fascinating. That's a great example. One of the other things that I want to just double click on, because I think this is something so 
crucial for the region. And we talked about this the other day, how you guys have launched the SoftBank AI Academy. And so tell us what it is and why data science for all is so relevant in Latin America. Yeah, a pretty simple thesis again, which is there is no talent gap. You have people with the same human capacity in all these places, but there is a skills gap. And closing the skills gap has never been easier than it is, especially now in a post-COVID world when everyone understands what distance learning means. And what we want to do as part of our proposition is close the skills gap, not only for our portfolio companies, but for a broad swath of emerging contributing members of society so that they can become future employees of our portfolio companies. So it is purely self-serving in that way. But we believe by lifting everyone's skill level, you create more opportunities for people to build interesting and innovative companies. You create more opportunities for our own companies to really uh, make a technological difference in the industries that they're in. And all that's missing, again, is just just add water, just add, add some of that skills piece that's been missing. And the response has been overwhelming. Uh, and actually, the quality of applicants to these programs, again, has been overwhelming. In, in every one of these underexplored things, whether it's Latin America or whether it's Miami, which maybe we'll talk about a bit, or whether it's the Opportunity Fund in the U.S., the fascinating thing is very simple things make a huge difference, and it's very straightforward to create value. Yeah. I love the fact that there isn't a talent gap. There's a skills gap. I mean, it's not like there's some gift or something. I mean, people are extremely capable. It's amazing what people have done with less resources in the region. And now that there's more resources available and we can close that skills gap, it's going to be incredible to see what happens. One quick question on that. You know, applications closed for that program. Are you opening up a new cohort? What's that look like? Because I think it's an important program. It's a journey. So we're building the SoftBank AI Academy, and it'll, it'll be many years that we build this. We want to make sure we understand product market fit uh, ourselves. And so right now we're doing it in partnership with Correlation One, which is a great uh, organization for upskilling and providing this once a year uh, program that's kind of cohort driven, that is both for upskilling the portfolios and for uh, getting new recruits people to apply and train and then get hired by our companies, hopefully. And we'll do that a few times uh, and then figure out how to make it bigger and a proper thing. And and here is where when you start to imagine the future, the intersection of a place like Miami with a concept like AI upskilling with a region like LATAMP can get pretty interesting. Like there's There's nothing to prevent us one day from uh, having a proper... SoftBank AI Academy <laughs> like in Miami uh, in partnership with a local university and in partnership with uh, a school from Latin America where students come and they spend time and they build products and then they go back. Like that, that is an end state that's really interesting and we could build towards, but it'll be baby steps. I like it. You're in San Francisco. Why don't you move to Miami, man? Everybody's, everybody's in Miami now. It looks like. I, I, am, I am moving to Miami. Oh, man. Look at that. And in fact, I, I've been planning to move to Miami for a few years. So when we launched the LATAM Fund, we made an early decision that the natural headquarters is Miami. And that is where the bulk of our team actually is already. My family and I were planning to move. COVID put a wrench in everything. And now suddenly Miami is hot uh, and everyone's moving to Miami. But t- to us, we kind of we got there already a couple of years ago. 
I think what's happening now makes it even more exciting. So the, the fact that you have um, a desire to live a lifestyle that you want rather than next to a job that you want, uh, the fact that you have very different tax regimes depending on where you live for the same general level of salary and the proximity to some of these more interesting markets makes Miami super interesting uh, to us, uh, to me individually, to us as an organization, and clearly to many more people now. And then you have this super receptive mayor who's just done a brilliant job, like brilliant job. He's a genius marketer and he's next level. And it, like kudos. And you know what it reminds me of is Dubai. Because the thing that Dubai got right was it thought of itself, well, it is really a city-state. And it said, we need to run this thing like a lean, mean organization with ambitious goals. Nairobi could never do that. There's like too much noise and overlapping constituencies and all that stuff. Basically, what Francis Suarez is saying, all right, city of Miami, city-state, let's let's think of ourselves as a unique polity that is like Singapore or Hong Kong or Dubai or what have you. And I think that's the future template for cities as they have to behave that way because it's going to get competitive. Austin, Nashville, Miami, like people will be making decisions between those places and you have to behave in, in a, as a rational actor to attract talent and capital. So he's doing a great job on that front and we want to help. Yeah. So how do they maintain, you know, I'm going to go back to one of the words that you highlighted a couple of times, momentum. How do they maintain the momentum? That's the trick, right? Um, I think, again, I think momentum begets momentum. So it's a really good start. I think it's critical in any ecosystem to have some breakouts, and that's a little bit of luck. So you need either a major company to relocate or a new company to emerge that's really interesting to build even further momentum around something and to provide further capital that gets recycled. So the bet is that over the next couple of years, you will have enough shots on goal in Miami happening that you will get one of these two outcomes or multiples of these two outcomes. And often it just takes a few focused actors. So uh, Keith Raboy, who's been super vocal, great. Uh, and he's like staking a claim, bought a house, moved, like he's going all in with Founders Fund on Miami. That kind of personal commitment's important. Marcelo obviously uh, grew his company in Miami. is very much kind of a, a Miami guy. Uh, we are going to be based there and going to be pushing the agenda really hard as well. So out of that kind of concerted pressure, something will happen. I'm convinced. And my prediction is you will get multiple nodes uh, for different industries emerging. And the Florida area could have a whole set of industries, um, a whole set of companies around a certain set of industries. Minneapolis, I was talking to a, a fund in Minneapolis earlier today, and there's this huge healthcare cluster there. Like there's there's a reason for Minneapolis to be some kind of healthcare cluster for innovation. Austin, a different thing. Nashville, a different thing. And so you'll have these multiple nodes. And there's no reason Miami shouldn't be on that list for a certain set of things. But we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. I think it's it's a bit Miami's game to lose right now uh, of at least becoming one place. Nobody's going to replace Silicon Valley. But Miami becoming one node of many nodes in a future multinodal world when it comes to innovation. Yeah. And I think it kudos again to Mayor Francis because I heard him up house the other day. And I think it was the guys from Platzi asked him, what's your vision for this city? And I mean, you've got to think big, right? And his response was, this is going to sound ridiculous to everybody, but 
Miami is going to become the most important city in the world, is what he said. And I mean, okay, maybe he doesn't, you know, maybe he doesn't hit the hit the stars and he lands on the moon and you know, or you know, whatever it is. But uh, you've got to have a big, big vision for what you're doing. I think going back to SoftBank Vision Fund, right? You know, you guys have had a big vision with what you're doing, and of course, like you're not going to hit a home run with every deal. You know, Moss is not going to be right about all his predictions of the future, but if unless you rethink how thing how the world is, you know, you're not going to be the one making the the future, right? And and there's an argument for that. I mean, cities are not ordained to be important forever. San Francisco, at some point, long time ago during the gold rush, was super important. And then it kind of became irrelevant for a long period of time. It became culturally relevant in the 60s, but not really economically. And then with with the tech boom, arguably, it became, I don't know when, or if that's still the case, the most important city in the world, right? In a sense. Miami sits at a really interesting intersection because I, I firmly believe LATAM is, is a, a really important region and is going to drive uh, a lot of interesting tech and growth, but is also really proximate to the U.S. and important for that reason as well. So that's one reason Miami is a very important place. But the other is sustainability. I mean, Miami is on the front line of climate change in a way that very few places are. Like it's going to be underwater. So if Miami, I think a really interesting opportunity for Miami is, is actually try to figure out climate change for a city. And if it does that and can serve as a template for many other cities that will be affected in the future, arguably it'll be one of the most important cities in the world. Because just like purpose is a mega theme, like sustainability is a mega theme. It's just going to get more and more and more and more important. A hundred years from now, sustainability is going to be exponentially more important than it is right now. And that's going to be true every decade. Right? My grandkids will care way more about it than I do. And a place like Miami could either be on the losing end of that battle or on the cutting edge of that battle, depending on how they play it. So I'm, I'm all here for that bet. I bet you 100 years from now, if Miami can get its act together around transportation and around climate change and sustainability and really doing some, some thought-leading work, I think 100 years from now, Miami has a shot of being a San Francisco, for sure. Love it. Just kind of wrap it up with a couple more questions here. We talked a little bit about diversity and I look at latitude and I look at the, the the volume of applicants we have, which you know there's a lot of people wanting to start their company. But when I look here and I see kind of the diversity of applications that we have, I can't help notice, but there isn't a huge number of kind of non-male, non-white founders. I just would love to hear your perspective on how can VCs expand their their network and because we both identify and know that it's it's not that there's not a lack of talent there. How do we do that? And what advice do you have there? It's, it's a really challenging question. My answer is similar to the answer I gave early on LATAM and some of what we've seen on the Opportunity Fund. You kind of have to commit. You have to say, I'm going to put capital here and then really do it in a concerted way because the, the founders are there. If they're not there, they're almost there. If you give them the permission to take that social risk, they will be there. So part of complaining about a pipeline is also saying that you're not doing enough to create a pipeline. So be, be the change, you know. And if there's enough concerted effort and concerted capital, there's no question in my mind that the talent is there. So what have we learned with the Opportunity Fund? Again, $100 million fund, purely focused on color. So there isn't a gender angle to the fund. 
it's purely focused on color. And one second, let me, my dog is chewing a toy and I don't want it to mess up the audio. <laughs> okay. So purely focused on color. And what we found, first of all, is gender is still an issue. So it's overwhelmingly male founders that we've come across. But people are building companies in every sector and every part of the world outside of Silicon Valley and New York. So because we've built the machinery that is looking for them there, we have found them and encouraged them and all of that stuff. So the simple answer is you just have to commit. I don't really know how else to put it. Like you got to actually do something and stick to it and, and help the founders and be willing to be there. I think we have the luxury as SoftBank of being able to commit those kinds of resources. A typical $100 million fund can't do all the things we can do as SoftBank. We have an unfair advantage in that sense. And a typical early stage fund struggles because if people will say you don't have enough uh, minority founders in your, in your fund. The answer isn't start a separate fund. The answer is put more minority founders in your flagship fund. And so they face that challenge of how do we accomplish both those goals? We're lucky we don't have that problem. There is no other early stage fund at SoftBank. No one else is writing $10 million checks or $100,000 checks at SoftBank. And so the Opportunity Fund can carve out this space in this audience with the support of the mothership that's pretty unique. And that's what it takes. I think every organization should have an effort like this. Every organization that's in tech or touching tech in some way or touching entrepreneurship in some way should have a dedicated vehicle and use the rest of their ecosystem to support the success of those companies. There's no reason why not. Yeah, and when I think about this, think about as an opportunity, people, it's not, this isn't charity work. This is like, this is an opportunity to double down on these incredible founders that are going after opportunities. And I think the returns will, will be there. Um, it's been a, a fun chat. We've connected a couple of times uh, in Miami. We, we had dinner that you guys hosted. We spent some time in Sao Paulo with you and the team. And so it's been a pleasure to kind of see the journey, you guys kind of dropping in. And one thing that I'll highlight is that a lot of the kind of global investors, they helicopter in and then they helicopter out, but it seems like you guys are really planting a flag. I mean, doing initiatives like AI for you know data science for all and, and other initiatives, these are these are things that are gonna take five to ten years to really reap the rewards of that. And so I guess the last thing I, I want to just kind of ask is how should people pitch you? You know, how can they get in front of you and what's that process like? So the LATAM fund, um, is a growth stage fund. So we, we do not really make early stage investments. And what that means, it's less about an early stage pitch deck and much more about what have you built so far. Because at that scale of capital, your, your, your fund size dictates your strategy, right? That's the maxim. A $5 billion fund has to write big checks. And, and so generally, how we find companies is based on the metrics. We uh, uh, are scouring every major market in Latin America constantly for things that are popping up. We are constantly getting referred things. Uh, if your business is good, what I'm going to promise is that like, we will find you. <laughs> and <laughs> if your business is good, like you should reach out too. but like, we're committed to finding good businesses. And the advantage we have as growth investors is there's data to show that it's a good business. It's not just, I think the founder is great. It's like, yeah, okay, but like, let's see your LTV CAC. Like, how is it? Let's see your growth month over month. How is it? Let's see your cohorts. It's very data-driven. And that makes it much less subjective, much less reliant on, oh, I know someone who knows someone. You should really meet this founder. They're great. It's like, if your business is great, we will get excited. 
And there are many we've seen that haven't been through the traditional venture uh, process in Lana. It's like a family that bootstrapped the company. They've never raised outside capital. And we take a meeting because we think it's interesting and we get the numbers and we're blown away at these things that are like growing 100% and EBITDA profitable. <laughs> and a lot of those in Lana because people never got outside money. So they don't rely on the J curve. They're like, no, we have to be cash flow positive in year two. Totally. So there are all these all these wonderful businesses. Sometimes what they need is the opposite: is take your profit to zero, yeah. and really grow this because you're you're there's an opportunity here ahead. So we will we will find you. Uh, we always love hearing from people who are building big businesses enabled by tech. Uh, they don't have to be in quote large markets. They just have to be good businesses with good underlying healthy performance and a team that's in it to 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 really go all the way. I think that you guys are definitely seeing all you probably need to see. And, you know, I think that one thing that I, I recall when you guys came, remember kind of where the, where I was when I got the news that, okay, SoftBank is coming in $5 billion fund. The thing that I'll reflect on is like a personal kind of reflection is we obviously spoke and, you know, you guys didn't end up investing in us and we ended up selling the company, but the impact that you had at the moment when you, when you guys came in, it was a smart strategy because well, having a $5 billion fund, I guess you can call it a strategy, but it's like that got the attention of everybody like overnight, right? Like all of a sudden, I remember showing up in Tokyo and I was, you know, meeting with Marcelo and I looked at the desk and there was literally like, I don't know how many business plans, but decks just like on the, and you could just kind of see them strewn over the, over the, the, the tables. And like when you guys came in, you, you probably, you know, you saw everything very quickly. And so, you built a reputation in a very short amount of time. And I think that when you make those investments also in big companies and big deals, obviously got everyone's attention. So, you know, but we, I, I will say we have to earn it every day. So we think of founders as our customers and you're only as good as what you last did for a founder. We really take that to heart. So it's not just about providing capital. It's also about helping these businesses actually be better, be bigger, uh, go public, be global all of those things and ha have better product, hire a CMO. So we're very focused on the founder is our customer and we will earn our next investment opportunity based on what our existing founders say about us. We, we want a high NPS. Yep. It's awesome. And congrats on everything you guys have built in really a short amount of time. If you think about it, right. A couple of years that you're here and you guys have more than planted to put a flag in Latin. Like you look at the portfolio, it's pretty incredible what you've done. So, well, thanks for sharing your journey with, with our audience here at Latitude. I think there's a lot of great nuggets in here that about the journey and it's not a straight line, right? I mean, <laughs> you look at your career, you know, and, and I actually really subscribe to that. And I love the entrepreneurial kind of mindset that SoftBank has with how you're doing things. And I think it gives you a real competitive advantage because it allows you to move faster. Speed is, is one of the number one things that is critical. If I can... We're playing chess and I can move two times to your one move. You know, I can beat a grandmaster. And uh, that's something that you guys have done on incredible scale, which is pretty impressive. Speed is not talked about a lot, is a very important thing that we value and we look for in companies. How quickly do you make decisions? How quickly do you launch products? How quickly? I think it's a very, very important characteristic and, and pretty rare. Love it, man. Well, thanks so much for uh, for being on the on the podcast, and uh, yeah, man, I look forward to uh, continuing and, and watching you guys, and, and hopefully investing in things uh, together. You know, obviously, I'm at a different uh, moment when I'm investing, but 
you know, maybe you guys can mark oh, we need We need you. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need you to help create the future portfolio. No, no, latitude latitude is awesome. To. Congrats on all the success so far. I think it's incredible effort. Thank you, man. It's, it's day one for us. So, but we'll hopefully we can graduate some people to uh, build that. We're market. waiting. We're waiting anxiously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Thanks okay. so much, man, for your time. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Shu Nayada, Managing Partner at SoftBank. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.